Hello, everyone. My name is Adam Williams, and you are listening or perhaps watching to another episode of Retail Redeveloped. I'm very excited today because I have a salty retail veteran uh, in, the, in the studio with me today, and we are going to be talking about Home Depot. We're going to be talking about years and years of merchandising and retail experience. We're going to talk about the growth of one of uh, America's most dominant retail platforms and brands. I'm so excited because I'm joined by Jim Inglis. He is a world-renowned expert with 60 years of experience in the retail and home improvement industry. He served in executive positions with Home Depot for 13 years as Vice President of Merchandising, Executive Vice President of Merchandising, Strategic Development, you name it. Uh, he was a member of the Corporate Board of Directors. And, uh, and Jim, you're, you're bringing a ton of experience to the table, some great stories. Uh, you've got a new book out. We're going we're to talk about all of this. But first off, Jim, I want to say thank you for joining me today. And, I, and just take a minute or two minutes or five minutes and, and just tell everybody a little bit about your background and how you became this you know, pioneer of, uh, in the home improvement category with years and years of experience. And tell us a little bit about the why behind what kept you going uh, through that insane journey and, uh, and ju just share some wisdom with us about how you got to sit in the seat that you're in now. Okay. Well, thank you, Adam. Um, it's true. I have been in the retail home improvement business for 60 years, um, focusing on home improvement. And starting out, probably the first half of my life was out in California working for both uh, DIY home centers as well as uh, professional building material suppliers. Um, in 1983, um, at that time, Home Depot had just started in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, had only eight stores. And uh, I was contacted by them to see if I would like to come to Atlanta and help join this new fledgling company. Uh, The industry at that time was quite different. There were 32 regional home center chains across the United States, and they were much smaller than a Home Depot. Their prices were much higher than a Home Depot. Um, they had a different service level than Home Depot. And the general consensus was, if you talk to the vendors, if you talk to the uh, uh, experts in the industry, uh, this whole Home Depot thing just wasn't going to work. The stores were too big. The prices were too low. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a viable business. But I came back to Atlanta and I, I visited the stores that we had open and said, my goodness, this is something really unique. This is something that's going to change the industry. And so I took the loop, leap of faith and, and joined the company in 1983. Like I say, we had only eight stores at the time. And um, then it was from there a whirlwind adventure of opening stores across the United States. And what was interesting is that, <clears throat> excuse me, as we, as we went into each of these markets where these 32 home centers uh, existed, these regional home centers, each and every one of those home centers ultimately went out of business uh, because we did have the better mousetrap. We did have the better uh, package for the customer. Um, so, I left Home Depot in, in, uh, uh, and, um, in um, 96, and when I left Home Depot, 
I began working with retail um, home centers around the world, um, not focused in the U.S., but focused in uh, South America, focused in Europe, focused in Japan, focused in China, uh, focused in Australia. And so for the last 20 years, I have been working with these various international home centers to uh, educate them on, well, how do you have a high productivity business? How do you grow your business so that you can have the same success that, that Home Depot had in the United States? And from that, I developed quite a curriculum, which I decided during this uh, previous COVID year that that curriculum would make an excellent book. And so uh, that's what uh, motivated me to then put all these thoughts into writing. And, and I did, in fact, uh, two days ago, um, publish Breakthrough Retailing, which is sort of a summary of, of, of what I have learned over those um, many years of working with Deep One and working with retailers around the world. Um, with the idea that what what really uh, made Home Depot so successful? Why why Home Depot? Why is Home Depot the largest home center in the world? And you know, people would ask me, well, you know, is it the pricing? Is it the size of the stores? Is it the promotion? But uh, and all those are important. But the real reason that the company was so successful was that uh, the servant leadership of Home Depot created what we call what we what I call a bleeding orange culture. Uh, the bleeding orange culture uh, was a culture where uh, we embraced the the principles of the, that were established by the company uh, through the leadership of our of our management team, and there was such a such a feeling of camaraderie in the company that we often said that if you were to cut us, we would bleed orange. And so that became uh, the subtitle of my book, which is how a bleeding orange culture uh, can change everything. And it was a unique culture that decentralized the business and put ownership at the local level, which really was the secret to uh, being customer centric, being really focused on our customers. And that's basically what my book about is, is how the culture of Home Depot helped it be a unique organization with unique principles that um, that really delighted the customer. I can't tell you how um, how many times how many times I've gone in and out of uh, the doors of a Home Depot, uh, especially over the last over the last years. I've uh, we moved. I feel like I've been in and out of there uh, more times than I can count, and certainly certainly got the credit card out of the wallet more times than I can count. But before we go into, because I, I want to touch on, you know, how you're able to take servant leadership from the top down. But before that, for, so Home Depot is easy to just, you know, it's, it's almost like oxygen, right? It's just a thing that exists in, uh, in America, right? You can't go into any, you know, even, even midsize uh, city in the country without seeing a Home Depot, so it's something that we almost take take for granted is it's just something that's always always been. Uh, but in fact, the market was dominated by you know the Ace Hardwares of the world and 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 the small players and the and the you know almost neighborhood players. Uh, and I'd love to understand what the founders saw and and what they were able to capture what that secret sauce was we all know, we all know it's a big store we all know the the prices are aggressive but but walk me through what 
the founders saw and what the founders were able to tap into that created this phenomenon now that is just something that, like I said, it just exists. Yeah, well, the original founders of Home Depot uh, were uh, Bernie Marcus, Arthur Blank, and Pat Farah. And all three of those gentlemen came from the home center industry. Remember, I mentioned there were 32 uh, regional home center chains. And so, uh, and, and I myself came from one of those stores as well. So all of us came from that same background. And it was basically a model that, um, was, um, that was duplicated over and over again. Um, and that set the rules of the, of, the, of the industry. And they were basically small stores uh, compared to Home Depot. Uh, the uh, Home Depot store today is, is 100,000 uh, square feet. A typical home center at that time was maybe 30,000 square feet. And they purchased through two-step distribution. So you had, you had the wholesaler that fed, that, com- that, that fed those chains, and then you had a relatively high margin uh, on those products um, from those wholesalers. And so the whole idea of Home Depot was let's, let's, let's build a store that we can buy direct from the manufacturers. Let's cut out the middlemen. In order to do that, the stores have to be bigger because we have to be able to take truckload shipments. And so, as I mentioned before, the stores were, were so much bigger. The prices were so much lower. It's because we really changed the logistics. You know, today you think about Amazon as a disruptor because they're changing the distribution uh, patterns in, in how people buy. Well, in 1980, Home Depot was a disruptor. It was changing the distribution patterns. And the end result was that there were many large wholesalers across the United States that were feeders to these uh, literally thousands of small stores that uh, ultimately uh, did go out of business as well as the, as well as the stores themselves uh, because uh, Depot was the disruptor that did in fact change the way home improvement products were sold in the country. That's incredible. And, and what a, what a vision to, to see that that was a, that was a, uh, a giant opportunity in the industry. Weren't one or all of the founders kind of unceremoniously kicked out of the original parent? And did I read, did I read that somewhere right. that they were kind of jettisoned and, and this was a, a pretty good revenge? It, it, it was. Uh, Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank were uh, employed by the Dalen Company, which Dalen was a retail conglomerate. And one of their uh, divisions was Handy Dan. Handy Dan was the largest home center chain in the United States, uh, if you go back to the 70s and 80s. And um, they operated different uh, branded stores in different parts of the country. And in Northern California, they had a chain called Bonanza. And uh, Northern California is a very um, unionized uh, type of uh, business environment. And those stores were trying to unionize. And Bernie and Arthur took steps that, uh, that they thought was acceptable, but that Dalen uh, was, did not feel was acceptable. And uh, the end result was uh, they were literally um, marched out of the corporate office uh, with, uh, with uh, guards uh, and uh, summer, summerly fired from their, from their job. Um, 
at that time, the third partner, uh, Pat Farah, had uh, started a new company called HomeCo in Long Beach, California. And HomeCo was, in fact, the first big box warehouse home center. And so um, Bernie got a call from Ken Langone, who is the uh, investment banker. And Ken said to Bernie, look, you know, I can raise the capital. We can start a new home center chain and uh, compete against Handy Dan. So uh, Pat and uh, so Bernie and Arthur then uh, contacted Pat Farah and because his his store was really revolutionizing the idea of home improvement. It was 100,000 feet. It was selling at wholesale prices. And so they, they, uh, Pat, they, they discussed this with Pat. Pat said, yeah, I'd be very interested. And they said, okay, Pat, well, um, let's, let's take a look at your books. And Pat said, well, you know, I don't really have any books. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they did an evaluation of the company and said, you know what? The, the merchandising concept is great. But the financial controls uh, are not, not so great. great. Yeah, not so great. And so, you know, why don't we take the idea and uh, let's let's find a different market. Uh, Los Angeles is a very big market. It's a very hard market to penetrate. So let's find a smaller market in the Sun Belt. Let's take the merchandising idea, but let's put some financial discipline to it. And uh, let's see if we can't reinvent the industry. And, and that's exactly how Home Depot started. And so Atlanta was the test market, probably started with one or two stores. Uh, you, you joined shortly thereafter, and, and then uh, the rest is history. Is that, is that pretty much yeah, the- well, What happened was that uh, J.C. Penney's had opened these giant stores called the Treasury. Uh, they, in some markets, they were called Treasure Island. In other markets, they were called the Treasury. These Treasure Island stores were huge. I mean, they were 130, 140,000 square feet. And they were not profitable. And uh, they had they had four stores. Some things don't change, I guess, with Jason Penny. <laughs> that was that was mean. I don't know why I had to say that. Can so, somebody while they're down? So they had four stores uh, in uh, in Atlanta, and so uh, the the three uh, founders went to J.C. Penney's. They were headquartered in New York at the time. And said, well, we, we'd like to subdivide perhaps um, 60,000 feet. And now 60,000 feet today is not a big store. But back then, it was twice as big as anything in the market. Right. And so uh, they uh, Home Depot took the lease on four um, uh, subdivided uh, treasury stores, one in each corner of Atlanta. And that was the, the, the first four stores. Uh, and about uh, a year and a half later, the same opportunity came up in, in uh, Miami, where Treasury also had four stores, and they did the same thing there. And, uh, and that's about the time I joined the company is when we had the. And then what's interesting is the, the property manager, the, the director of property for JCPenney at that point, uh, fell in love with the, with the Home Depot concept and uh, it became our property, our property guy. Yeah, and that's that's a story that that I think we're going to hear more and more of in in today's climate. Obviously, being in the regional big box retail game at the moment is 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 a scary place to be. Um, a lot of what I do is is a little bit more urban, so I'm not as subjected to to 
that pain as, as a lot of my contemporaries. But I think that you know, one of the silver linings to COVID and to everyone you know, having to completely reinvent themselves or a lot of people having to reinvent themselves in the, in the retail world, I think what you just mentioned is going to be an unforeseen opportunity where you have these other retailers that are maybe just ideas and really smart people's heads or something that is to the investment banker level that is already finding uh, the capital and is, and is waiting for a way to deploy. I think it's going to be interesting, uh, especially as retail is becoming you know, as much a logistics game as, as a merchandising game. I, I think that we're going to see some really interesting scenarios play out and, and new people that, that don't exist now that are going to be able to kind of jumpstart their growth uh, because of of more opportunity than there was a few years ago. Yeah, there's uh, you know logistics is certainly a, a key part of the the retail business today. In fact, I I have two grandsons that are in uh, university and with business majors, and I keep t- telling them logistics guys think about logistics because it's just so much of the business today. Um, and because there's so much variation in the business from very big boxes to uh, like Home Depot to a, a small store like a like an Ace Hardware uh, to uh, the internet and uh, the specialty retailing that's on the internet. Uh, all of this involves uh, unique types of of uh, logistics in order to to make those models work. And um, and technology is uh, such a key part of making those logistics work that whoever has the best technology in each of those different formats is, is, is going to be the dominant player. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I 100% agree. Uh, so before, before we get into culture, you know, wh- where, did the, where did the name come from? Again, it's such a simple thing now, and it, and it just exists. Uh, I, I'd love to hear uh, how Home Depot was, was first written down on the back of a napkin somewhere. Well, the, uh, the, the way the name came about was that uh, Bernie Marcus, who, who was the chairman of the company, um, was riding in a car with uh, a potential investor. And um, they were talking about different names. And uh, Bernie had kind of a crazy name he had in mind, which is uh, something like, you know, Bad Bernie's Bargain Center. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> really, really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and uh, they're driving in the car, and uh, the one of the wives of the of the people in the car said, "You know, it, well, it'll be kind of like a like a Home Depot, won't it?" <laughs> and uh, the light went on, and yeah, exactly, you know, light bulb. That's the name. So you know, you 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 know, uh, marketing companies are brought in and paid millions of dollars to come up with a name for a company, but uh, the Home Depot's name just came from a conversation in the back of a car. I, I hope that wife uh, got, a, got a nice thank you present. If, she, if she's not given royalties, uh, I, I hope that, uh, I can tell you for one thing, uh, my wife would never let anybody hear the end of that if she came up with the name that, uh, that was in every hometown across the country. So let, let's get into, I mean, you said something earlier that I want to, that I want to unpack a little bit, uh, and that's how servant leadership helped grow uh, this company. And, and I, it's, it's amazing, and I hate picking on specific retailers, but I do it every show anyway. I mean, when you go into a lot of retail stores, um, you know, you're, 
with Amazon, you don't really need to go into a store nearly in the same way that you used to. And if you are in a store, it's because you are trying to get a question answered or you're trying to get a better idea of kind of an immersion of, of a brand or a product. You want to be able to touch it and feel it. And a lot of retailer stores that you go into, um, yeah, I don't want to say you're treated as a nuisance, but you're certainly not getting any kind of white glove treatment. And I've always been impressed that at Home Depot, you know, it's supposed to be a, a manly thing where you don't, you know, you know, you shouldn't have to ask for help at Home Depot. But, you know, it, it, I, I sometimes need some instructions to screw in a light bulb. So I'm not afraid to ask a question at Home Depot. And uh, it's, it's amazing to me how people are always willing to go out of their way to uh, make sure that you get your questions answered. Even if they don't know it, they're going to find somebody that knows it. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's kind of even trickled down into the app now. I mean, the app tells you, you know, what bin, what bay, what aisle, how many are there. And even if it's not 100% accurate, it's, it's um, you know, I can tell somebody's working really hard to try to make it accurate. So walk me through how that all started with servant leadership from the top and how it's been able to stay a part of the culture for now since, you know, 1980, 83, whenever it was. Well, the, the whole idea of, of the servant leadership is to um, really push uh, decisions down and out through the company. And, and by doing that, um, empowering the local people to run their business and to um, uh, take ownership in their business. In order to do that, you have to educate the, the, the staff, not only into how to run the business, but why? What is the why behind the business? Because if they know the why, then they can make the good decisions. And um, and so the the you have to have a, a a driving mission. You have to have a north star that drives the company. And the north star for Home Depot was delighting the customer. And and our motto was that. Uh, we will give the customer. We will give our customers no reason to shop elsewhere for home improvement products, and our employees knew that they were empowered to do that. Um, and that's that's the attitude that the customer feels. A customer walks into a store, they they will determine their attitude of the brand of that store by the qualities they see in the people. If they see that people care, if they see that people are knowledgeable, if they see that people um, uh, are competent, that they uh, can deliver, that they will consistently deliver, um, that they have their back, then they will take those they will take those uh, qualities and they will then apply those qualities, you know, to the brand. And I think that's exactly what happens has happened at at Home Depot. Um, it's interesting if, if when you read the book, what you will see is that that culture was 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 developed by the founders of the company. They they lived it through example and it was ingrained into the culture of the company. And then in uh, 2000, the original founders left the company and a new CEO was brought in from outside. His name was Bob Nardelli. He came from the General Electric Company. General Electric was not a decentralized company that empowered local people. It was a very centralized company. And for the next seven years, 
Home Depot uh, went into a reversal and and the culture was actually uh, held down. And the end result, if you look at if you look at market share prior to 2000, every year Home Depot grew market share against Lowe's. During the seven years of Nardelli, Home Depot lost market share to Lowe's. After Nardelli left and the culture was reestablished by the next CEO, which was a guy named Frank Blake, Home Depot began to grow that market share again. And so the, the, the culture of the company and the attitude of the employees has an incredible impact on the way that the customers view the brand and essentially where they spend their, their dollar votes. So how, how can you keep that going? How can you, you know, cause culture is, is a buzzword, right? You, you hear it all the time and, and it seems like something that, you know, it's one of those, if it were that easy, everybody would do it kind of things. And the, and the, this is so tired. I hate going back to this example, but it's so good when you're talking about culture, you know, you can walk into a McDonald's, a Zaxby's, and a Chick-fil-A that are all on the same corner of the same road in the same town with the same labor pool. And the experience that you're going to get in, in that Chick-fil-A is going to be 180 degrees different than the one that you get uh, at McDonald's or at, you know, pick in Hardee's, whatever, pick, pick any of the other fast food users. And you can tell that, they have figured out how to instill that culture, how to keep that culture, how to grow that culture. And, you know, I would assume part of it is the way that they pick their individual store operators, but it's more than that, right? It just permeates the you know 16 year old girl that's taking your order that, you know, standing out in the blazing sun that still has a smile on her face, right? Like I, like I don't get how they do it. So how do you instill that culture? And then how do you keep it going and make it more than just, you know, a, a BS buzzword that is on some kind of blackboard somewhere that some, that nobody ever looks at. Yeah. Well, you know, people need to be compensated for their work and you need to be willing to pay a premium for good people. Um, if you pay a premium for good people, then those people will stay. And because they stay, you can then invest your time in training them and teaching them and educating them. Uh, and part of that education uh, is, is not just talking about the how, but the why, as I mentioned before, so that they really understand you know, what can they do to make a difference. And, and people don't just work for money. They work because they want to be part of something successful. They want to be something bigger than themselves. And so, and so an important part of, of, of developing um, that that staff that's excited about the customer is giving them a cause that's bigger than themselves. That uh, your 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 company uh, has a vision that that your employees buy into, and and a lot of this happens by by finding those successes and then celebrating the successes. It's so important to celebrate success, and and as you celebrate success, those those develop into stories. And, and, and by management uh, telling those stories and retelling those stories on a constant basis, it becomes part of the fabric of the company. Uh, give you an example. We had a store manager in Louisiana, uh, Larry Buxberg, and, uh, 
every morning at Home Depot, you have a you have a a, a, a cheering session. You bring all the employees together and you, you you have a cheering session. And one of the things you do is you spell out the name of the company three times, and then you ask what that's all about. And the answer is customer service. And so at the end of each session, Larry would take a dollar bill and he'd put it in the pocket of every employee. And during the day, he would walk through the store and he would observe um, how they treated the customer. And if they walked by a customer without greeting the customer, without starting a conversation, he went back and took the dollar back. And so what that showed was that what was important to him, what was important to him was not if the products were arranged neat or if the store was sweat clean. No, what was important to him was that we acknowledged each customer. And so by the employees seeing the management living the word and expressing uh, the culture in what they do uh, and knowing that that's what they're looking at, that's what they're paying attention to, well, then, um, then they know how to react. They know how to behave. Um, they know what management expects. Uh, and so uh, it, it's, it's, it's a matter of, of management walking the talk um, and re- not just rewarding with money, but, but rewarding with, with emotion, with psychological uh, 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 benefits. And, you know, what happens in so many businesses is, is they get so in, focused on the quarterly numbers and even though they say people are important, well, we're not going to do bonuses this quarter because the numbers didn't come in right. And when you get overly focused on the KPIs and the numbers and forget what your mission is, uh, that's when the culture, you know, basically goes starts to hell. To, yeah, starts to starts to flounder. Well, I mean, we spent a lot of time on on Home Depot for good reason uh, but I mean, you, you've, you've had a, you've had a great career, both stateside and, and otherwise walk me through what you, what you tell people when they're, they're starting a retail business. And obviously everybody wants to be the next home Depot. Uh, what, what have you found that has kind of transcended industries and is, is kind of bedrock principles that you always try to get people to understand and adapt Walk me through just some other things that that you would put on your kind of billboard that you want everybody to see. Well, I think the the the, the main uh, message that I would give to to people is and is is that you have to be customer centric and and that's kind of a catchphrase today. Customer centric. Everybody says, well, you know. Uh, we're going to be customer centric. Um, but then do they put their money where their mouth is? And in most cases, the answer is no, they don't. You know, every CEO, you ask any CEO in the, in the, in the, in the world, uh, do you value your people? Yes. Do you take care of your people? Yes. Do you uh, invest in your people? Yes. But then look at the numbers and see if they really do. And in most cases, they really don't. Um, and so uh, the real the, the key really is um, to be customer centric and to and to uh, understand that 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 all your decisions uh, should not be based on 
what's the best for our logistics group? What's the best for our marketing group? What's the best for our HR group? No, all the decisions have to be what's best for our customer. And, and everybody has to understand there's only one KPI. And the only KPI is customer satisfaction. And, and we should all be working together to delight that customer. So whether you're talking about, you know, the merchandise assortment, whether you're talking about the pricing, whether you're talking about um, the, 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 the service aspect of the business, you always have to go back to, um, you know, what, how does the customer perceive it? What is the customer's perception? Perception is reality. And the only reality is the perception in, in your customer's mind. And so your brand is your most important asset and you must protect that asset. And that asset isn't something that you have in your hands. That asset is in the mind of your customer. That's, that's so true, Jim. Uh, Jim, do, do me a favor. Tell everybody how they can connect with you, how they can obviously uh, get a copy of your new book, uh, how they can how they can just follow what you're doing and, and connect with you uh, if 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 they've enjoyed what they've heard so far today. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, my uh, the best way to to learn about me and learn about my book is to go onto my website. My website is called BreakthroughRetailing.com. Uh, Breakthrough Retailing is the name of my book. It's called Breakthrough Retailing: How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything. So, um, you know, please go to BreakthroughRetailing.com. You'll see a little bit about me. You'll see a little bit about the book. And also, uh, we'll have ways to contact me if you wish to. Wonderful. Now, before I let you go, I always like to do some quick knee-jerk questions. Uh, just, just, you know, some, some kind of soundbite kind of answers that, that uh, you know, that I think everybody kind of enjoys you know, obviously the, the most important clickbait, you know, I would get kicked out of the podcast club for retail if I didn't bring this up, uh, the retail apocalypse, you know, how I, obviously I, I think it's as cheesy as, as everybody else in our industry does, but, but obviously retail is changing in, a, in an incredibly drastic way. Uh, what would your advice be to your, um, to your you know, peer group, your uh, constituents, on how they can prepare, adapt, survive, thrive uh, in a time where, where retail is just changing by the minute. Yeah. The, the first thing is that there is no retail acopolyps. Uh, the retail acopolyps is a red herring. Uh, there are more stores today than there were last year and more stores next year than there will be this year. Um, so, um, there is no retail acopolyps. There are bad stores that have gone out of business and they should have gone out of business. And in most cases, they went out of business, uh, not because of e-commerce. They went out of business because, um, they did not uh, innovate. They tried to continue the same formula that they had for the last 20 years and, and, and didn't innovate and change with the time. And they didn't ad adapt to the new technologies and the, and the, the, new, uh, um, the new attitudes of their customers. So there is no retail acopolyse. Um, there are great opportunities in the retail business. And, you know, there's, there's a false uh, premise that, well, because e-commerce doesn't have stores, that it's a more efficient way to get product to the customer. And that's a lie. Uh, the most efficient way to get 
the most popular products that sell in the most quantity to the customer is through the retail store because you can buy in quantity and the logistics, which we talked about earlier, the logistics work very much in favor of the physical store because it's so expensive to handle the logistics in e-commerce. What you find in today's world is that if there's an acopolis coming, it's for the pure e-commerce player because the pure e-commerce player, um, think about this, average retail person in the past has made about $10 an hour. The warehouse worker makes $15 an hour and with fringe benefits, it's $18 an hour. And there are more people today working in, in distribution of e-commerce that that population is growing faster than the than the than the store population. So you're trading, you're trading store hours and and uh, for for warehouse hours. Uh, you have the you have the the incredible cost of freight to get the product to the customer. You you have this this situation where there's more and more and more e-commerce companies, and. The only way you can be successful if you're pure e-commerce because you don't have a storefront is you have to be constantly advertising. But if you want to advertise, you can only advertise on basically three platforms, you know, Facebook and Amazon. Google. And, you know, and so and so what's happened, you have more and more companies trying to get the attention of the customer through a narrow media. And because they're an oligopoly, they can charge whatever they want. So, so the e-commerce, the pure e-commerce company today has a logistics problem. They have a labor problem. They have a, a working capital problem in trying to maintain a long tail of slow selling merchandise. And they have an incredible promotional problem. So, so it, there, there is no retail acopolis. However, I think that there are probably many e-commerce, pure e-commerce retailers that ultimately are going to find that they are in a um, an e-commerce apocalypse. So I, I think what you're what you're saying is is very very interesting and very timely uh, because of uh, Warby Parker just announced their IPO. Um, Allbirds is is about to do the same. And uh, if you look at the most successful e-commerce companies, the most successful direct to consumer cost uh, companies, they are trying to figure out a way to get into the brick and mortar business to supplement their, their already robust uh, direct-to-consumer platforms. So it's, it's yeah. interesting how things come full circle. And I think, I think it, it, it plays into kind of what you're saying. Uh, and it, it's very interesting when you look at, uh, not everybody's probably dug into uh, Warby's IPO filings because everybody's not as big of a nerd as uh, me and some of my friends are, but the cost of, of a customer and the cost of selling that pair of eyewear to an e-commerce person versus someone uh, that's walking into the store is wildly different. And uh, we could probably spend an entire another podcast talking about that and what that means. Um, I'm going to hit you with one more question uh, before, before I let you go and before I let you get back to, to, to your busy life is what has you excited about the kind of, uh, pandemic world as it relates to retail or the post pandemic world as it relates to retail, what do you think will be something very interesting, helpful, groundbreaking 
that comes from this kind of forced adjustment and evolution that we're all witnessing right now? Well, I think that um, it has helped make it clear to all the the brick and mortar retailers that they have to be um, omni-channel retailers and they have to be um, proficient in their technology. And, um, you know, what you see in in our business uh, in particular is the growing uh, use of the car pickup in the in the in the in the parking mm-hmm. lot. And I, I think that that ultimately is going to affect how stores are designed and how the parking lots are laid out, because, you know, you have drive through banks and you have drive through um, fast food places. Um, I think you're going to see. uh in the hard lines business, you're going to see more redesigning of how do we flow, not just our customers through the store, but how do we flow our customers through the parking lot? And I think you're going to see a lot more um, drive-through facilities um, where there's minimal contact and uh, and uh, ease of ease of loading. And, and you're still going to see people using the internet to place their orders, but I think... Uh, they're going to find ways to make it easier to pick those products up at the store. So I think I'm, I'm giving away, and I mean, I say it all the time, but I think the grocery store today is going to look so different than the grocery store in 10 years. Um, I think that it, it's going to be interesting to see if it looks like an old school bank teller line where it's a massive drive through organization with, you know, a, a half a million square foot logistics warehouse, 10, 15 miles away that is just constantly fulfilling these orders. Uh, so I agree with you hundred percent. I think high volume um, things like that are, are such a no brainer uh, because I don't think that the public's Kroger's of the world can rely on Instacart. Um, it, it just seems like such a stopgap measure to me. And it drives me crazy when my wife uses it because it's, my order's never right. So it, it, I, I think that I think that that industry is going to be, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see if it skips straight to delivery only or if or if there will be a uh, a huge drive through component. So I, I 100% agree. And and to your point earlier, retail has become a logistics game. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, well, Jim, I just want to take a second and, and acknowledge you. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing you know, 60 years of lessons and wisdom with us, as well as some fun stories about about uh, Bernie's, you know, big home shack or whatever that horrible first name was. Thank goodness Mark that Center. woman was in the car. Uh, and, and, and because I don't know if that would have ever taken off like Home Depot, but thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, I had a really good time and, and go check out Breakthrough Retailing, how a bleeding orange culture can change everything. And it certainly has. Uh, thank you for your time, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. Bye-bye.